Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Hammer Show. With war for over a year and a half now in Russia and Ukraine, with Xi Jinping trying to march into Taiwan, who knows when? Who knows when his territorial ambitions will materialize in ill-gotten gains? With this recent horrific ransom payment, this prison swap with the world's number one state sponsor of jihad, the Islamic Republic of Iran, with all of these headlines of botched U.S. foreign policy decisions, it is relatively easy to overlook, if not forget, what has been the single biggest botched Biden administration fiasco soup to nuts over the course of this uniquely horrific administration. I speak, of course, of the 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan. This is an issue that continues to percolate for those who are actually paying attention, but it's also all too easy to forget about it. Thankfully, there has been a brand new national best-selling book on this very topic. The book is called Cobble. The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. It's co-written by two gentlemen I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years now, Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. They really do a deep dive. They do a deep dive here. They are able to reveal a lot of never-before-told information of the various scandals. What did Biden know? I mean, he knew a lot. He knew from his top military brass. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He was told time and time again that if you do this, if you do that, the U.S. embassy is going to be taken over by the Taliban. What about all the Americans who were left behind? What about those galling, absolutely horrific images of the United States military convoys taking off from the airbase with people hanging on and falling to their deaths from it? I mean, the, the sheer quantity of scandals that went into this withdrawal and that emerged from it is something that the American body politic has not fully reconciled with. Yes, there have been some sort of of Pentagon quote-unquote investigations, not nearly enough, that is for sure. At the time, I wrote a column arguing that this was an impeachable offense, that this was that bad, that it amounted to a breaching of the public trust. It was a high crime and misdemeanor under the Article 2 constitutional criterion for that. It is one of the greatest scandals, bar none, of the Biden administration. And again, it it is way too easily forgotten here with everything going on in Russia and Ukraine, Putin, Zelensky, Xi Jinping there. And I happen to say all that as someone who wanted the United States to get out of Afghanistan for a very long time. I I was calling for this as far back as probably six, seven, eight years ago or so. The point is, it didn't have to be done this way. It could have been done a heck of a lot better. Our guests, Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan, are going to break it all down for us. They will tell us how it could have done better. They will tell us how Joe Biden so thoroughly botched this. it's Kay- 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. Joining us now are the co-authors of the national bestseller, Cobble, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. Those co-authors are Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. Jerry is formerly of the Washington Examiner. He is currently an investigator for the House Foreign Affairs Committee investigating the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, although he, of course, speaks here in only his own capacity. As for James Hassan, he is a prolific right-wing attorney who himself is a veteran of Afghanistan for many years. Jerry and James, I've known both of you guys for a very long time now. Congratulations on the smashing success of this new book, and thank you so much for joining the program. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Josh. Thanks, man. You bet. So let's dive right in here. It seems to me that this story went away very, very quickly. I would hazard a guess that it seemed to you guys that it went away, which I have to guess was part of the reason why you wanted to write this book in the first instance. James, of course, you're a veteran of that particular conflict. I mean, you don't have to persuade me that this thing was a total soup to nuts debacle. I wrote a column in the immediate aftermath, literally saying impeach Joe Biden. I thought the way this was handled was absolutely a breaching of the public trust, which fits the high crimes and misdemeanor. I thought it was an impeachable offense. The question that I have and that I've continued to wrestle with for the past two years now is how much better could it have been? I mean, granting the premise that we obviously were not going to remain in this third world Islamist backwater forever. What did you see as to just the steps that could have been taken to make this more palatable? And could it have been better? I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you know, I I think it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because I think on the right, um, and even you know places on on the left, there 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 are plenty of people that say, well, okay, well we weren't going to be there forever, so what was the alternative? And we try and make clear in the at the prologue of our book, in, in particular, Cobble, that no matter which side you come down on about whether we should have stayed, whether nation building was, you know, it was just BS and we should have gotten out. Things didn't have to turn out the way that they did with Americans stranded, left behind, abandoned, 13 Americans killed, 45 more wounded. And I think the easiest way to explain that and why things didn't have to turn out the way that they did is to point first to the, uh, the decision to give up Bagram which was just the original sin uh, of this, this whole debacle. 
there was just a complete failure to plan and to heed warnings. Uh, if we kept Bagram, uh, and Jerry can speak on this in, in a bit more detail, because I know that uh, the committee has been speaking to folks who were who were there, and, and we did as well. But if, if we kept that, we would, at the very least would have had uh, standoff distance and probably have kept a, a protective radius around Kabul um, and Bagram itself. And, and the bomber himself, who was in prison at Bagram, never would have been released. He would have been behind bars. Uh, and what's fascinating about it is that one of the things that we uncovered is the Obama administration conducted a feasibility analysis of retrograding from Afghanistan through Kabul airport instead of Bagram. And they determined that it was a recipe for disaster. Uh, and and they, they just put any idea of using the airport in Kabul just on the shelf. Uh, and, and Joe Biden you know, dusted it off and <laughs> decided he knew better than everyone else. And, and the results speak for themselves. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we can get into to a whole lot of different details. But the bottom line here is that we could have done an evacuation in a safe way the way the military was asking to do it but biden wanted to be able to say that there were only 600 troops left in you know summer of 2021 and you can't hold bagram and you can't do an evacuation with 600 troops right and uh unfortunately had deadly consequences yeah jerry do you have anything to add to that Josh, all, all that i'd add and there, there's there, there would be a lot to add but we we can just look at the way that that Biden made the withdrawal announcement, and you can just see how the sequence of events that followed from that was not inevitable. So Biden announced in April 2021 that we were doing a, a go to zero conditionless withdrawal from Afghanistan, obviously, despite the fact that the Taliban wasn't you know, abiding by the Doha agreement or anything else. And he makes this withdrawal announcement and decides to withdraw all U.S. troops, um, but without a plan about what to do about the Americans being left behind, without a plan about what to do about the tens of thousands of Afghan allies that were going to be left behind, um, without a plan about how to keep the Afghan military, at least on the battlefield, to keep the Taliban at bay so that we have time to do all the things that we need to do. Because keep in mind, the U.S. had basically built the Afghan military designed it around U.S. support. And so pulling all those U.S. troops out also meant pulling contractors, ISR, logistics, all the stuff that we had designed the Afghan military to function around. And so this was already a very weak Afghan military. And we basically kind of just like kicked their weak legs out from under them on our way out. And we did all this without a plan about how to get Americans and Afghan allies out. And on top of that, just look at the time that the time frame that Biden set the withdrawal deadline for. He picked September 11th, yep. 2021. Now, this is a kind of a gross and bizarre date to pick for something like this. Um, so there was no strategy behind it. It was all politics. He wanted some sort of victory lap on the 20th anniversary, some way that he could make his mark on the war in Afghanistan. But by picking that date, it meant that the U.S. was do was doing this rapid withdrawal right in the middle, right in the middle of Afghan fighting season. So we've been there for 20 years. We knew by then when the Taliban is at its strongest and when the fighting is at its strongest. And we chose that exact moment to 
immediately pull our troops back. And so as we pulled our troops back, the Taliban pushed forward, the Afghan military dissolved. And by picking September 11, 2021 as the withdrawal date, what Biden actually kind of sadly and tragically and ironically ensured was that it would be the Taliban, the protectors of al-Qaeda, who would be back in charge on that 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks. Right. And it was also the the peak fighting season for the Taliban. Their fighting season is the summer, in the winter, when it's cold there in the mountains, they tend to retreat to the caves. So, uh, I mean, the lead up to 9-11, by definition, is kind of the peak of summer, the months of July and August and so forth there. So you, you can't ignore that element of, of pure idiocy here as well. Uh, I'm really glad that you pointed that out because it's a thousand percent correct. We've been there for 20 years. We know that this is when everything ramps up. And General Miller, um, Scotty Miller, to his credit, who stepped down versus instead of executing what he knew to be a, a just a, a harebrained plan, made that point over and over to the Biden administration that we're picking the worst possible time. But this was a political decision, not a military one. Let's pick up right there, actually. So you're saying this is a political decision, not a military one, which I think anyone with a single brain cell who was following this could have easily told you. So then the question is, is, is why? I, I mean, why Joe Biden was in his first year as president? I, you know, we'll, we'll assume for the sake of argument that that Joe Biden is aware of what's going on around him and is still calling somewhat of the shots, although I think that's a somewhat debatable proposition. But let's just let's just assume that then. Why? I, I mean, why was he so obsessed with the optics of being out of Kabul on the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 when everyone around him was telling him that, you know, you pull the U.S. flag within a few days, you might have the Taliban flag flying there. So, I mean, that, that really is the next question then. It's just why. Yeah, look, I want to kick this to Jerry and then I have some thoughts I'm going to add in on the, on the back end. Well, you know, what I would say is that, you know, first off, your, your point about President Biden's his age and his fitness for office, I, I think that a lot of questions get raised about that. And I think oftentimes those questions are pretty, pretty legitimate. But through writing our book, we came to, I think, a very, very evidence-based conclusion that when it came to Afghanistan and this decision to withdraw the way that we did in this just ridiculous way, this was Biden himself driving it top to bottom. So I think questions get raised about whether he's making every decision in the White House, but this one, the debacle in Afghanistan, this was on him. So it's tough to get into his head, but there are you know some data points that that we can look at. We can look at um, his time as a young senator. We can go all the way back to the end of the Vietnam War, where the war is wind the Vietnam War is winding down. Biden kind of joined the, the Senate too late to make his mark as like a big anti-war senator, but he still wanted to make his mark on the war. And so he became the biggest voice in the United States, the biggest, most powerful voice advocating against uh, the Ford administration's efforts and sort of a bipartisan effort to at least help get some of our South Vietnamese allies out of Vietnam before the North Vietnamese rolled into Saigon and threw them all in re-education camps. And so that's kind of how Biden tried to make his mark. And he has a famous quote where and I, I, I'm, I'm botching it, that only by the slightest amount, but he said something to the effect of, we have no more obligations to 100,001. We have no more obligation to one South Vietnamese. So that's kind of his mentality. And so you can 
sort of see why he had this flip in nature when it came to Afghanistan, especially a flip in nature to leaving all those Afghan allies behind, those interpreters and others that had helped the U.S. military for 20 years, tens of thousands I'm left behind. Then you have his time as Obama's VP, where he's pretty much ignored by everybody for eight years. And he got, got a really big chip on his shoulder, um, especially in regards to U.S. generals and the U.S. military, because they basically just ignored everything that he wanted to do. And on top of that, I, I, I don't want to ignore the fact that President Obama's kind of biggest, I think maybe his biggest foreign policy win that he had was that successful raid killing Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And Joe Biden was pretty much the only person to tell Obama not to do it. That's right. Um, And so Biden basically made no real impact on the war in Afghanistan. And the biggest sort of victory that a lot of people could point to, that successful operation against bin Laden, he was on the other side of it. And so he wanted to make his his mark, um, but he also doesn't really seem to care about the impact that a decision like this would have because you saw the flippancy that he had with the end of the war in Vietnam, and he brought that same flippancy to how he treated Afghanistan. And obviously you saw the disastrous consequences of that. Yeah, I think Jerry did a great job summarizing it, but the, the, one, the one kind of global point that I'll add is that uh, – you're absolutely right when it's that it's just inexplicable. And uh, while writing the book, we um, Jerry and I had a bunch of conversations about how do you provide a you know a logical or, or rational explanation for a decision that that is just patently illogical and irrational, um, and you can't, but without getting into to Joe Biden's mind, it's clear that he had kind of this toxic combination of thinking that he was the smartest person in the room while also being a, you know, perhaps the least informed person in the room. And he came into, he came into office with this fixation on getting out of Afghanistan. And one thing that, that we report um, in our book Kabul is that, in his very first week in office, he gathered his advisors and said, how quickly can we get out? Not, you know, how can we do it safely? How can we do it while making sure there, you know, you know, are no Americans left behind and we keep our promises. There was none of that. It was simply, you know, day one, how quickly can we get out of Afghanistan? And, um, as Jerry mentioned, there was, uh, you know, I, I think a big chip on his shoulder from the Obama years when uh, basically his advice got overruled. And, and it's kind of telling. At, at one point, he told um, some of his advisors that uh, the military rolled Obama, but they won't roll me. Wow. And so he just. Uh, I mean, that says it all right there. Sorry. I mean, sorry to cut you off. Well, I mean, like that really does say it all right there. Right. It is the military rolled Obama. They will not roll me. I mean, this is these are the words of someone who has his end goal in mind, who is ideologically driven to achieve a certain end. The means essentially 100%. be damned. And we see this play out time and time again. I mean, Joe Biden is not the only example of that. I mean, for Barack Obama, the Iran nuclear deal was, I would argue, very similar. I mean, he had his end goal in mind. He won this rapprochement with the world's number one state sponsor 
of jihadism for unclear reasons. And whatever the means, whatever kind of, you know, pallets of cash that has to be flown overnight, it, it, it's a very similar thing. And I guess, unfortunately, it has become now a, a hallmark policy of Democratic president's foreign policy. So we're, once again, we're joined here by Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. They're the co-authors of the national bestseller book, Cobble, the Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with Jerry and James on the other side. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Josh Hammer Show. So we're back here with Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan, co-authors of the national best-selling book, Cobble. So we're continuing our conversation here about the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. What, one question that I also don't think has received quite enough attention is, I mean, all the attention in American foreign policy circles right now is on Ukraine, Russia, and of course, China being the, the elephant of all elephants in the room. Do, are, are these events connected to each other? Uh, is the outrageous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the optics of that, the 13 soldiers tragically who, who, who were slain, the hoisting of the Taliban flag of the embassy, this whole debacle, from your guys' perspective, I'd be curious how it relates to Putin, Xi Jinping, and some of the other world's worst actors. Yeah. So, you know, we, we dedicated two chapters in our book just to the fallout uh, with Russia and the fallout with China. So when it comes to when it comes to Russia, I, I think that we make a pretty airtight case backed by a lot of evidence that Putin looked at uh, the debacle in Afghanistan um, and the 13 Americans killed, the Taliban back in charge, the Afghan allies being abandoned, Americans being abandoned. And NATO and the United States looking like they were in a shambles. And he combined that with, you know, Biden's first year in office, uh, you know, letting the North, letting Nord Stream 2 off the hook and various other things and decided that this was if he was going to have a moment to try and do what he's wanted to do for a long time, which is a full invasion of Ukraine. This was his chance to do it. Um, you know, whether that calculation was smart or not, I, I think remains to be seen. But we, we make a very strong case in the book, an entire chapter, that this Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, at least in part, because of the debacle in Afghanistan, the way the United States and NATO just looked weak and looked like they didn't know what they were doing. And you combine that with the total lack of of deterrence um, in the lead up to the war. And, and there you go. And when when it comes to China, we have an entire chapter in the book on this as well. And we called it the CCP and the Kabul moment. That's that's the name of the chapter. I encourage everybody to, to give it a read because China saw this as a huge propaganda win for them. And w- what they immediately started calling this, Chinese state media, China's foreign ministry, they immediately started calling this the Kabul moment. And they used 
this debacle, these Americans getting killed, Americans abandoned, the Taliban back in charge. They use this moment to direct their propaganda straight at Taiwan, saying, look, this is the Kabul moment. This is what what the United States does. This is what's in store for you if you try to side with the United States, if we invade you. This is how the United States treats its allies. Um, so don't even think about it. And you can see since then uh, China's aggressiveness towards Taiwan has increased markedly. Um, I don't think that there's any way to deny that. And so, you know, whatever your thoughts are on what the U.S. should have been doing in Afghanistan after 20 years, I don't think that there's any way to deny that we're living in a much more dangerous world than we were two years ago. We have a major war on the European continent, and we've got China looking like it's getting closer to invading Taiwan. And we make a very strong case in, in the book that both these countries looked at the debacle in Afghanistan and decided that it was the moment to to ramp up their aggressiveness. And, and we're kind of paying the price for that now. You know, I, if I can just jump in really quickly, Josh, um, everything that, that Jerry said was right. And as a kind of an overarching point, it, it used to be that uh, a blue passport, you know, an American passport was the most valuable document in the world because people knew that, you know, if you get captured by a terrorist organization, if you get, uh, you know, rolled up somewhere, like the full force of the United States government is going to be breathing down the back of whoever has you in captivity. Um, and you could see this even just in uh, you know, episodes like Somali pirates with one American ship. We sent Navy SEALs and we killed everyone and rescued them because that's, you know, that that's what the U.S. government does for its citizens. Uh, and here there was there was just a uh, in full view of the world, a complete abandonment of that ideal. Uh, because there was no will to fight a a Stone Age um, militia. And, and so that alone really undermined our, our credibility and undermined the idea that this administration would, um, you know, would show up for any kind of fight if a nefarious actor wanted to 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 make some trouble. But I, what I what I really want to go back to is, um, yeah, you mentioned Iran earlier. And in this context, actually, the consequences of this decision have not, not just emboldened China and Russia, but they've also empowered Iran in ways that really have never been reported outside of our book, Kabul. Do you elaborate instance. on that? So, yeah, for instance, all of the, the Afghan commandos who served alongside U.S. Special Forces troops for decades right, who were left behind. Have now been a lot of them have now been recruited by Iran uh, and debriefed about things like how does the U.S. military special operations conduct operations? How do they how do they plan? How do they react? What are their capabilities? Um, and we were able to document this um, by talking to former Afghan commandos who have been approached directly by Iran and looking at messages that that were exchanged and also just. Even through, um, you can even see it through social media posts of former commandos now in Tehran <laughs> with 
you know, posted side by side, hanging out with uh, members of the IRGC. Wow. Uh, so that's that's something that, that really no one has talked about, but it's it's absolutely a threat to American life and American interests. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, like truly no one else is talking about that. And that's pretty, pretty damning stuff. I have to say, James, I really liked your your colorful description there of a, of Stone Age militia. I thought that was that that was very powerful imagery and, and, and certainly accurate. That that is for sure here. So Look, I mean, here we are we're over two years later. We just had the two year anniversary of its botch withdrawal. The Gold Star families are properly, properly and righteously as indignant and angry as ever. And that leads to the obvious question as to what accountability we're going to get from this. And Jerry, in, in your new role as investigator for House Foreign Affairs, I, I have to imagine that that is part of your your, your daily work, but I, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, if you, if you can comment on that, that's great, but at a bare minimum, I'd be curious for both of your reactions to how the Pentagon has, has handled the, your book. I mean, I mean, what has their reaction been? What has the military brass's reaction been to all of the, the various revelations about all of these ridiculous things that you guys have helped expose? I mean, as, but one example here, I would encourage listeners to check out this column that Miranda Devine had for the New York Post recently, kind of shining a spotlight on one thing that that you guys air. I think you guys aired it for the first time in your book, which is where U.S. Marines were literally ordered to pick up human feces before they were allowed to leave Kabul to make it clean and pristine for the Taliban. I mean, this is like the Babylon Bee, and it's not the Babylon Bee. Tragically, it's real life, and real people paid their lives for it. So that's a very long-winded question, but I'd, I'd be curious for your guys' perspective on what accountability we can hope for and what those investigations, to the extent they've already happened, have looked like thus far? Well, I, look, I can I can say that th- there has obviously been no accountability so far. I mean, no, nobody's been fired. Nobody's resigned. In some instances, people have just been promoted, right? Um, perhaps the only accountability, if you can call it this, um, is that... Uh, August 2021, you see President Biden's favorability take a nosedive that it has not recovered from and perhaps never will. Because I think it was sort of a mask off moment where people realized that people that were maybe giving him the benefit of the doubt, giving him a chance, um, saw that this he he was he's incompetent, he's uncaring and he's, you know, he's a disaster and he presided over one. Um in terms of, um, you know, the the Pentagon, uh, CENTCOM just announced that they're sort of reopening part of their investigation into the Abbey Gate bombing, um, in part to go back and interview Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who they had not interviewed before. He was a Marine sniper um, who testified to Congress earlier this year that um, – you know, he had received a, a, a description of potential um, threat to the airport, potential suicide bomber, believed he had identified the person matching that description and asked for permission uh, to engage, but um, was not given permission to do so. Um, and then this suspect, you know, disappears into the crowd and then the bomb goes off shortly thereafter. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about that in the book. We also talk about other potential missed opportunities to have hit ISIS-K um, before the Abbey Gate bombing. Um, and a lot of this all goes back to the fact that 
because of the decisions that President Biden had made, we were reduced to just a tiny airport in the middle of Kabul with the Taliban controlling the entire country. And so the U.S. military was having to rely on the Taliban um, to protect these, uh, you know, to to protect uh, the airport, to protect our service members and to conduct this evacuation. And we saw how that, you know, played out. Um, the Taliban were obviously not trustworthy. The first thing that they did when they took Bagram was they freed 2,000 ISIS-K prisoners, including the, the guy, Abdul Rahman al-Aghari, who would go on to commit that suicide attack and kill those 13 Americans just a week and a half later. Um, we also were at, th- there were moments where, because of our book, we've now learned that there were at least 10 different instances where we asked the Taliban uh, to search or raid uh, suspected ISIS-K locations ahead of the Abbey Gate bombing. And the Taliban would often just tell the U- U.S. military, no, we're not we're not going to do it. And so, you know, this is, again, not not particularly uh, what you would want out of your security partner to uh, not take care of the ISIS-K threat. And again, they, you know, we see a successful ISIS-K bombing. And there was also, according to records, Pentagon records that that uh, that we um, reviewed, there was an airstrike. Um, proposal against an ISIS-K location in Afghanistan before the Abbey Gate bombing that didn't move forward um, because U.S. military because in you know in this testimony it says that military commanders uh, deemed a strike to be infeasible due to a negative response from the Taliban and so th- th- this is sort of the the situation that we put ourselves in where we put our our safety the safety of U.S. troops and U.S. Marines and the success of an evacuation, we put all of that in the hands of the Taliban, who we had been who we had been fighting until literally a second before. Um, and you see how that played out. It was it was a it was a disaster. The scenes at that airport were harrowing and horrifying and ultimately deadly. You know, James, we're unfortunately starting to run out of time here, but I do have a final yeah. question for you specifically because you're the veteran here. Some of the most difficult conversations that I have had over the past two years are with veterans of the Afghanistan conflict who themselves feel like they spent years and years ultimately in vain. And they just have this incredible bitterness and resentment that has built up. And obviously, from my perspective, it's, it's, it's completely justifiable. I'm curious how you view your time as an active duty U.S. Army captain there in Afghanistan and Ultimately, I mean, do you feel that it was a waste? Yeah, uh, let me. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that, and I'll close with that very quickly. Just to add to what what Jerry just said about uh, everything we reported. Uh, one thing I want to emphasize is that the Pentagon has not denied a single factual assertion that we reported wow. in our book Kabul. Not wow. a single one. Uh, and in fact, when they announced that they were you know, quote unquote, interviewing more people. Uh, they did so last Friday, right around five o'clock, which which kind of tells you everything you need to know. But uh, but wow. to your to your point, yeah, I mean, the, this was it, it was a difficult book to write, and uh, one of the, the one of the difficult things was, you know, uh, sitting there and talking to dozen scores of, of Marines and, and soldiers who were at the gates. Um, 
and asking them to relive the worst, you know, day, the worst two weeks uh, of their lives. And knowing that when I was there, uh, you know, those were the 18, 19, 20 year old, um, you know, men and women who, who I was, I was commanding. So I, I, I kind of had a visceral connection with, with what their experiences were, but, uh, yeah, I, I think to your broader point about what, what this all meant, that that's one of the reasons that we wrote this book. And it's one of the reasons why so many people were willing to talk to us because there are a lot of people that have given, you know, decades of their lives and in their lives. There are friends who are buried in Arlington, um, in Afghanistan and to have it, uh, kind of ripped up just by the, you know, whim of a individual who thought he knew best. It, it was, was difficult to see and, um, whether we wanted to stay there or not. And I was partial to getting out, um, uh, there had to be some kind of accountability and, and that's why we wrote cobble and, uh, I just encourage all your listeners to to give it a read. It's um, what what one hundred percent. So the book once again is Cobble: The Untold Story of Biden's Fiasco and the American Warriors Who Fought to the End. Available everywhere books are sold. You guys have have already done. A, a huge good for the public conversation and getting some of these never before told stories out there. And ultimately, if it helps lead to some sort of meaningful accountability and justice for the Gold Star families, justice for, for everyone who, whose years spent over there were in vain, then it really, really, really will have done a just tremendous good. So congratulations on, on this matching success. That's Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. My old friends, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it, man. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. The Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Russell Brand's book deal has been paused following sexual assault allegations. He's been accused of sexual assault by at least four different women. So 
is the hashtag Me Too movement coming back? We have really not seen much from Me Too. As far as the woke culture wars are concerned, it seemed like Me Too was totally supplanted by the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the the rainbow flag, the gender ideology stuff. Those two subcomponents, the broader woke ideology, have really crowded out the feminists and the Me Too stuff over the past few years. Are the feminists making a comeback? Well, I guess we'll see. When it comes to Russell Brand in particular, this is a famously promiscuous man. I mean, this is someone who is is infamous for having slept around Wilt Chamberlain style all across the UK. He has been married a couple of times briefly, if I'm not mistaken there. I mean, he has an infamously colored romantic sexual past. So hardly surprising that this stuff is coming to surface. The question is, why now? That is the obvious question. Well, As it turns out, Russell Brand has become something of a woke, skeptical voice through his show and through numerous public appearances over the past few years. He is not someone who is a conservative, to put it mildly. I'm sure that I vehemently disagree with him on many, perhaps actually even the great majority of issues. But he is not someone who is down with the woke cause. Perhaps that's why the woke karate's are trying to get him now. Look, when it comes to book deals, things like this, canceling for episodes that came out 20, 30, 40 years ago, we all should be very skeptical of this, guys. I mean, yes, I think that those on the right tend to overuse the rhetoric and phraseology of cancel culture. Not everything that happens to a bad person who has been canceled, not everything is actual cancel culture. There are some people who actually do not deserve to be in the public light. This very clearly is not that. This is just the wokes trying to get someone who has been outspoken against them. Mark Milley says military is not woke. So Mark Milley, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has pushed back on claims from Republicans that the military is woke. He says he's not even sure what the word truly means. I mean, give me a break, dude. Uh, give me a freaking break. Mark White Rage Milley. You remember that? This was a couple of years ago where it turned out that Mark Milley was publicly defending literature distributed to the U.S. Armed Forces talking about, quote unquote, white rage. It was under Mark Milley's chairmanship of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that we have public documentation of all sorts of Ibram X. Kendi style critical race theory woke crap that has been highly recommended and or assigned to various folks in the military. And, you know, as the case may be, we just heard a great conversation with Jerry Dunleavy and James Hassan. James Hassan's first book, again, he's a he's a veteran of the Afghanistan conflict. His first book in 2019 was literally on this. So I'll give James another shameless plug here. You can go ahead and check out his 2019 book titled Stand Down, How Social Justice Warriors Are Sabotaging America's Military. So James actually wrote a whole book on this very topic apropos of our conversation today. Finally, Chicago's Democrat mayor wants city-run grocery stores to promote equitable access to food. So Mayor Brandon Johnson, the commie who has replaced the outgoing and still horrific Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Johnson announced a partnership to open municipally owned grocery stores in Chicago. Look, is it possible for things to get any worse in Chicago? Well, you know, Lori Lightfoot, who was absolutely abominable, she has been replaced here by a lunatic. I mean, there is no way to describe Brandon Johnson other than be an absolute lunatic. I mean, crime has gotten even worse. These videos, these footages of the looting and rioting is horrific. If you are still living in the city of Chicago, and I say it as a former Chicago resident, get the hell out. 